If you read the old Vedanta literature, the classic sutras from the Middle Ages, what we would call the Middle Ages, for them it was already late times for the Vedic culture. They tend to divide the path into two forms. Uh, one they call the path of the valiant and the other the path of the fearful. And they say that the, those who are in fear come to God looking for refuge. Whether you're coming to God or Buddha or Dharma or Sangha or whatever it is that you're looking to get your refuge in, it comes to the same. But depending on your assemblage point, you may have a more subtle understanding of what you require for that refuge to be effective and what that refuge is against because ultimately it's always a refuge against an internal enemy, isn't it? And they say the path of the valiant, on the other hand, is not taking refuge in some god or supernatural force or supreme power as an other, but one who has the courage to recognize that God is the self. And that you merely have to claim that power. But I tend to think that in these postmodern times, that's too simplistic a dichotomy. And that in a way it takes more courage to admit that one needs help uh, than it does to believe that one can do it all on one's own. And it is that pseudo-valiance that may actually hold one back for a long time on the path, believing one can do it on one's own, but being in denial of the fact that one is using a lot of props in order to hold one up, and it's not really a true surrender or realization of God consciousness, but uh, the use of some drugs or other means to achieve an altered state of consciousness that always brings about a collapse afterwards and a deeper imprisonment in the tamasic guna. So I think we have to recognize that the valiance comes from the truthfulness. And the truthfulness comes from admitting that the ego, no matter what its structure, is based on lack and is based on fear. And that it is only after a a great deal of inner work that one can actually authentically grasp that the self with a capital S is in fact one self for real, not just theoretically. And can make the leap from ego self, jivatman to paramatman. And although that leap is the final state of the journey, for everyone, that valiant crossing of the abyss and based on the realization that in truth there is no other to help you. If you're looking for God as another, you are in some mythological structure and that it won't help you at a certain point. The only refuge, the only real refuge is in the self. 
But to get to the point where no, one is no longer needing to project out the self onto whether it's a Buddha, Dharma, Sangha type of situation requires a great deal of raising of the Kundalini. And until that happens, one should not feel some stigma in asking for help and receiving it. Because without getting the Shakti pot that will shift the internal psychic economy through bringing in pure energy of love and divine power that can indeed be projected. Uh, one may uh, wander in the desert for much longer than one needs to. But in truth the sadhana is always a combination of the two. And when we are in our daily lives, there should be a recognition of the interdependence and of the humility required to continue to learn at deeper and deeper levels of subtlety what the great sages have taught as to how to reach this place where the valiant achievement of God consciousness is authentic and truly possible. And that only happens at the point where the ego itself has become so sattvic that there are no longer any projections from an unconscious that need to be purified and released. And that takes a lot of inner work, especially for the old souls that are attracted to a path like this, in which there's a lot of built-up karma that ultimately is a blessing because all of that karma, which, which appears as weakness, is what will be converted into wisdom. Okay? Weakness into wisdom should be our motto. Because that weakness is really strength. You know, we talk here about the seven realms of knowledge, as well as the Kundalini map of the chakras. And you know, in the Kundalini map, chakra one is in a certain way almost like a mirror image of chakra seven. In chakra one, there's nobody there because you don't want to exist as a, as a physical being because it's too much responsibility, it's too hard, you know, there's too many bills you got to pay uh, of every kind. So you want to obliterate your consciousness, even of your ego. And, uh, and you, uh, you space out, black out, drug out, whatever you do to avoid and to escape from the burden of existence. But at Chakra 7, it's the other side of that. You have now transcended the need to exist as a, an individual seeking jouissance, seeking pleasure that is pain, and uh, all of the enmeshments that brought about needing to pay so many bills. All of that has become irrelevant. And all the constructs in which you have been working, you have now outgrown. And so there's nobody there. But to go from chakra one to chakra seven means you work through the false belief in all the seven bodies. Those of you who have taken seminar one, you know we talked about seven bodies, right? Well, all seven of them are illusory. Okay, we didn't teach them because they are real. We taught them because those are the levels of illusion that consciousness is caught in. Ultimately, there are no bodies, not even the universe, and we're all nobodies. But there is, no, there is no universe out there because even that construct of internal and external is based on, on the illusory thoughts 
of an illusory ego. In the same way, when we talk about the realms of knowledge, remember the lowest one is the realm of unbearable knowledge, right? And then at the top is supreme knowledge. These two are mirror images of one another. Or maybe better, to get to the supreme knowledge, you have to go through the mirror, through the looking glass of Alice in Wonderland. But at a very deep level of realization, the ultimate bliss is identical with unbearable suffering. And that's the reason people are running away from bliss. It's not because they don't want to be happy. It's that they don't want to face how unhappy they are uh, and to fully confront the reality of that in order to go through it and beyond it. But the extreme, unbearable suffering of the ego can only be transcended when you have fully faced it and recognized that the ego that is suffering is itself an illusion. But not by running away from the suffering and not by trying to cover it over with defense mechanisms and projections and all kinds of games that egos play, but no, going right into the heart of darkness and then traversing that plane of the egoic fantasy into the freedom of the real self. So bliss is unbearable. And this is why the, uh, the path tends to take a long time. And people wander around in the shallow water instead of diving into the depths of the ocean. So it takes a lot of courage to face that and to face the weakness of the ego and accept it, not to uh, try to overcome it through artificial means, but to accept the absolute helplessness the absolute impossibility of controlling anything. And that surrender to the ordainer, as Ramana called that being, is what allows that final valiant step of realization that the power that does control this dream is in fact the self. And that's the ultimate laughter that comes at that moment when one has faced everything. But you don't get the joy of that laughter until you have drunk the dregs of the crucifixion, which is why Christianity is such an apt symbol for Kali Yuga. The ego is crucified, and no amount of anesthesia will take those nails out. So the only way we ascend off the cross is to release ourselves from the original sin, which is the belief that I am the body. And therefore, I want the bodily pleasures that seem to come with that, which is, of course, then the source of the addictions and the weakness and the pain and the disappointment, etc., etc. So we understand the game, but that's different from having courage to go beyond the game through the act of surrender. Surrender of the mind itself. Surrender of all the ego narratives. It's not just surrender, okay, I'll keep these vows or I'll meditate at this time of day or I'll do anything external. It's not about what you do. It's about the giving up of the right to think 
We're so proud of that, right? Autonomy, free thinking, and all of that. But the thinking isn't free. The egoic thinking is determined, and it will lead you into those same ruts of suffering. So it's not that we want to give up our thought to some big brother's thought. No, we want to give up the illusion that language itself produces that acts as a veil separating our consciousness now trapped in this prison house of language from the source of power, which is pure presence. And by transcending that and realizing that through uh, going beyond the need to have the prop of language, one has access to infinitely more information. And one's intelligence goes infinitely beyond the language-based ego structure. And it's that development of the capacity for infinite realization, not finite thought, that is what gives you the ability to go beyond the suffering of the ego. So it's an ultimate empowerment and a brain boost, but at the cost of the absolute humbling of the ego mind. So are we willing to be that authentic and that radical in our approach to what is real? And that's what's being tested every time we sit to meditate. Am I willing to surrender the right to have some ego narrative about all of this, whatever that is, to be the source of this? And to recognize that all of those thoughts are illusions and ultimately there is nothing but the self. The self is one without a second. And so all of the beliefs we have, whether scientific or philosophical or emotional or sentimental or whatever, they are all illusory. They're all imaginary. What is real is only the non-objective self. The self that is pure awareness. But to give up objectivity is one of the ultimate props. I would say objectivity and language are the two crutches that we tend to walk on as an ego. And, and both are illusions. You can't reach truth through thought and you can't reach freedom through objectivity. Because that very object that you're identifying with and creating as a dream is now entrapping your consciousness. And so the act of freedom means going back before you decided to put yourself in that stepped-down mode of energy from shakti to prana in order to enjoy the jouissance of the body and of the pleasures that the egoic life could bring. And before making that decision, there is still that ultimate freedom that has never been lost. You've only dreamt that you've lost it. You haven't really lost anything. So by awakening from the dream of the ego, liberation is instantaneous. Okay, so that's what we're doing when we're meditating, simply returning to that point of absolute purity of presence 
that has surrendered its illusion of individuality and autonomy to the source that is the supreme consciousness. <coughs>